Good morning. Thank you, Moitang, a lot for the kind words of introduction. I'm very happy to be here. I'm very happy to be back in Singapore. I've never been for so long in Singapore for a three-week time, and the, particularly thanks to the NUSS uh, that has facilitated my visit uh, through this uh, professorship. Uh, I've been great hosts, and they also put together a rather dense program for me, so this is already within a week my third public lecture today. And uh, I see some people have attended previous lectures, so uh, I apologize that there is going to be some overlap, but I've also tried to put a new emphasis on this one, and in particular the emphasis on the economic dimensions. What do demographic trends, what does low fertility, what does education and human capital mean uh, for economic competitiveness, for productivity, for economic growth in an international context? Muiteng has already mentioned all the different institutions I work with, where you see the logos here. I just want to highlight where I've worked all the past 25 years. This is Yaza, which is hosted in this nice uh, castle outside Vienna that Empress Maria Theresia built as a summer residence for the imperial family in the 1770s. Uh, and so that's where we reside and do our thinking about the future of the world. Okay, uh, we're going to cover a number of topics this morning. Uh, first, I'll say a few words about the demographic modeling, particularly when we go beyond just age and sex gender, which is the uh, typical demographic approach and incorporate uh, human capital and education. Uh, then inevitably these days, people in Singapore are very interested about fertility, what is the right level of fertility, how to measure it, and the whole process of population reproduction. We'll say a few words there. And then we're going to jointly think a bit. Uh, there is this clear notion that population aging is indeed a big problem ahead of us, not just in Singapore, in all the low fertility countries, in all the uh, industrialized countries. And we have a closer look what actually are the problems that should be associated with population aging, and to what degree is it going to be a problem. And then again, we move uh, to the issue of health, education, and the um, positive impacts of human capital on economic performance and human well-being in a global perspective. And I will uh, conclude with uh, a specific view sort of on the ASEAN region here because that's where Singapore rises uh, right in the middle and where maybe we can draw some uh, parallelities with the European uh, Union experience and possibly what is ahead with respect uh, to the ASEAN region. So if we think about uh, economic growth, uh, in some countries, particularly in Singapore, where there's a lot of money, there's a lot of banking, uh, offshore banking, um, there is this notion quite frequently that it is money that creates wealth. Well, money is just a tool. It's just something to be handed from one person to another. Really, uh, quality of life and wealth and economic growth, in the end, is produced by people. So the study of economic growth, and all the classic economists have um, acknowledged this, must start with the study of the people who produce economic growth and well-being. So in, in the old times, uh, we produced it with our own hands, and then we started to use tools in agriculture and then later on in industry, but it was us who designed these tools. We built these tools, and we operated the machines, or design the institutions that make it possible. It's us who run the banks that collect the money and borrow the money. So at the end, it always comes back to the people, the human beings, as the generator of wealth for themselves and for others. 
And that uh, makes uh, demography, I think, so central also to the study of economic growth because demography, as I define it, is the mathematics of people. And uh, we have long acknowledged that people do not come as an amorphous mass. Not everybody is the same, but there are differentiations among people. And in, with respect to the economy, it is not every member of a given population makes the same contribution to the economy. So what are these uh, differentiations? Well, uh, in demography, we uh, usually start with age. It's clear that a baby, a newborn one, cannot make much of an economic contribution. It is a receiver of help and support. But then uh, young adults can indeed make a major contribution, and then when they are very old and in need of care again, uh, they, they are sort of on the receiving end. So age is an important uh, differentiating force, particularly if we take the whole life cycle into account. Well, uh, sex, as we call it in a biological way, or I mean, if you talk about social norms, it's probably better to use the word gender, also differentiates in almost every society uh, patterns of uh, labor force participation are different uh, by gender and there are other their health differences, their behavioral differences. So, and of course for demography the, the main thing is that women can have children where men have uh, some role but not as intensive a role in childbearing as, as women have. And then that's what our Wittgenstein Center really has added uh, to the literature recently. There is educational attainment a very important differentiation. Different people with different skill levels make different contributions to economic growth. Health status is important. Labor force participation is important. And there are many other dimensions, such as place of residence and so on. So in the following uh, analysis, uh, we have, for mostly reasons of data availability, only focused on the educational attainment dimension of human capital. It's much more difficult to get information on health status. They tend to be largely subjective measures of disability, whereas if you assess how many years a person has been in school or what's the highest level of educational attainment, that's a fairly objective measure that can be uh, collected unambiguously. Well, uh, just a few short looks to population dynamics. So what you see here in the background are population pyramids. This is what we demographers see our sort of main tool of depicting what's going on. And as I said before, the key dimensions for demographers are age and sex. So we have the women on the right-hand side, men on the left-hand side, and they are sorted by age groups, uh, five-year age groups in this respect. And then we're now adding education as a third demographic dimension. So you see some colors in each age group, and you see sort of no color in this uh, graph is no education. Then we have light blue, um, low sort of some primary education, and then gray secondary and blue tertiary. You can have these categories in different ways. The main message is you have to differentiate populations by another source of heterogeneity in addition to age and sex. And then what are we doing in population projections? Well, uh, let's see this example five years from 2000 to 2005. Over five years, everybody gets five years older. So you move this pyramid one step up. But if you move it up, uh, you don't have the lowest category. So where are the members of the lowest category coming from? Well, they are the babies to be born over the next five years. So you see it, uh, you apply to women um, these uh, four different age-specific fertility schedules because women of different level of education do have different fertility rates. So the combined birth of these uh, fertility rates then are put to the bottom category of the age pyramid. Then we need to consider uh, child mortality also, and that 
than will result in the population five years later. But over these five years, not only people are born, but some people die. So at all ages, uh, we have people uh, leaving uh, through mortality. And again, here we have education differentials. We have different age schedules for different mortality. And then, of course, migration is the third force of population change. And in particular, in Singapore, uh, migration is, is very important for the population projections uh, that you are discussing heatedly these days. And also the differentiation by level of education, it makes quite a difference whether this is unskilled labor or skilled labor migration. And of course, people are coming into the country as well as leaving the country. So all these uh, demographic forces are now considered by level of education. And on top of this, of course, we have to assume uh, what level of education do the young people get over time. So when we operationalize the human capital as the uh, sort of the, the factor of population, you need people there who are the carriers of human capital, and then they need to have an education and skills, and as I said before, their health is also necessary. If you are not in good health, you are less likely to make a contribution to society. And when we talk about now focusing on the education level, we really have to distinguish between formal education, that's what happens in school, and informal education, that's everything you learn from early childhood, through the media, from your friends. Of course, we are learning all the time, and many things we learn outside school. But again, when we focus on the formal school education, there are three quite different dimensions that all matter, and only one is the quantity. How many years, or what is the highest educational attainment? Very important is also the quality, how good is the teaching, what do you actually learn in class, and this can be assessed by some tests, most famously the PISA tests uh, organized by the OECD. And then also at particular high levels of education, content matters, what topics are being taught and uh, what are we learning there. But now we just focus on the quantity of formal education. I just wanted to make that this is just one narrow aspect, but it's the one that we can capture best. And here the statistics and all the policies typically focus on what we call the education flows. This is what happens in school, like how many people you move from the uneducated uh, to the educated category or from a lower education to a higher education category. This can be measured by gross and net enrollment rates by age and by repetition rates and by student-teacher ratios. This is what most of uh, education science is all about. But what we are interested in is not so much what happens in school, but what happens after school. When these people leave school, what skills do they have at adults? And that's the education stock. That is what we call human capital. And like any stock variable, that is a very slowly changing, very inert, and it has a, a great momentum. How can we measure the education stocks? Well, economists uh, have for long just had sort of one indicator that's the mean years of schooling of the adult population above age 25, which averages across all age groups, and also it cannot give you the distribution, like how many are without education, how many are with tertiary education. What we are going to look now is having this full pattern of the entire distribution plus the age dimension. And then there is some data from OECD and other international agencies that actually uh, study what is called functional literacy tests of adults. Like it's a sort of a PISA study for adults. They have to fill out questionnaires and you see, you read them a short sentence and then you test whether they understood it or let them read it themselves and answer questions and so on. Okay, as I said, we focus now on the formal education and uh, age and sex. So I came first to Singapore in 1995 
And this is the population I met in Singapore. When, when you take the MRT, of course, you don't see a label on the head of everybody uh, what level of education you have. But essentially, this was a, a society that just was in the midst of a very rapid transformation. Let's just have a focus on the shape of the age pyramid, which is interesting there. In 1995, there were very few elderly people in Singapore. You see just above age 60, very, very few people. The bulk of the population was between 20 and 50 years. Uh, this is partly due to immigrants, but more so due to the very high fertility that was prevalent in uh, Singapore 30 years before. In the 1950s and 60s, more than six children on average were born per woman. And then it's getting narrow for the young ages, and that is a function of the declining birth rates that started in the 1980s and to really decline very strongly to re sub-replacement level. But then you see a broadening again at the very bottom. Does this mean that fertility increased again? Now, here you see an interesting uh, demographic phenomenon. We call this the echo, uh, in age structural echo, of the baby boom. Because if you have a large number of women in reproductive age, as we have here in 1995, even a small number of children per woman increases the number of births if there are more potential mothers. So it's really sort of the echo of the large cohorts there in the 1930s. Well, we can reconstruct Singapore back to 1970, and we've done this for all countries in the world, these reconstructions, which really gives us a very rich basis for empirical analysis, not just as the mean years of schooling, as the economist has done in most past analysis, uh, but really by age groups. And as you see here, if you would calculate the mean years of schooling, it would be quite misleading because you're averaging almost completely uneducated uh, elderly cohorts, particularly among women in 1970. Uh, almost none of them had gone to school above the age of uh, 40, together with much better educated young cohorts. So despite of the fact that they are more numerous, there are more of them, they had received a better education. So if you want to get a more detailed effect of the, what does it mean to economic growth when these uh, better educated cohorts move into working age, then you have to have an age-specific look, and that's what we're gonna have now. This is 75, 80. So we're doing now exactly what I described before. We're moving the population pyramid up one step every five years. And of course, after a certain age, let's say after age 30, the educational composition of a cohort does not change. They're just getting older and older, but maintain the same composition. And that's the reason why still in 1980, when Singapore was doing very well economically, for women above age 50, most of them never went to school because they were at the school age in the 1950s when Singapore was still a very poor developing country. And now we can clearly show that it was in these years when these better educated and see now in the 80s, really tertiary education, the dark blue starts to kick in when they came into the working age and took responsible positions in business, in government, then these were the boom years for the Singaporean economy, this very rapid expansion. We had both large numbers of them and they were very well educated. So we go on to 1990, 95, 2000, 2005. This is Singapore today. You see now the young population, extraordinarily well educated, better than in most other industrialized countries. Only Korea in a way has such a high level of tertiary education, and possibly some of the Nordic countries and Canada also come close to that. Um, but still you have, uh, quite unlike the European countries, you have all this red area for the elderly uh, because the improvement in education is so recent. 
And then, of course, you see because of the low fertility, now we, the echo of the baby boom is over. So these bigger cohorts are already uh, 10 to 20 years old. And now the very young ones, again, are, are much smaller. This is a consequence of the low fertility. Now we go uh, most likely projection into the future, 2020, 2020, 2030. This is the target year of the famous white paper that's being so hotly uh, debated here. Uh, you see our population projection, which is based on, on global trends, is only 6.1 million for 2030. What we are doing in terms of migration is that we assume that the trend of the past 15 years, roughly, uh, is continued into the future. Uh, well, evidently, the projections uh, that are, uh, underlie these uh, 6.5 to 6.9 million of the white paper assume a higher immigration over the coming decade uh, than our projections do. Uh, what this also shows, when we look at the color, that really the Singaporean population of, is going to be much, much better educated, almost than any population in the world. And uh, the question to be discussed now is whether this better education of the labor force uh, can compensate, or possibly even overcompensate, uh, the, the smaller size of the young cohorts, this presumably negative effect uh, of, of smaller young cohorts. This is going to be the topic pretty much for the rest of this lecture. We can do this, and we did this up to 2050. Then, of course, you see a, a rather distorted pyramid, almost a pyramid upside down, where then uh, the, the bulk of the biggest cohorts really are 50 to 70-year-olds. But they already will also be very well-educated. And uh, in this context, we really have to start a redefining age and rethinking age, and I will talk more about this later in the sense that indeed there's reason to assume that 70 is the new 60, and these highly educated 70 to 75-year-olds can still be productive members of society and are not just uh, on the negative side of the uh, dependency ratio. Okay, just in conclusion to compare these two, these are really two different societies, Singapore as it was in 1970, and it is likely to be uh, 60 years later. Such a massive transformation uh, is, is also quite usual in international context because this, the decline of fertility has been so rapid, much more rapid than in historical Europe, and as well as the education expansion. So this is one of the, probably one of the strongest transformation of societies that we've seen in uh, recent human history. We can also plot this uh, in terms of the total population by level of education, so sort of leveling out the age uh, dimension here. And we see again that in the 70s, you had these high proportions of less educated. And then you had at the same time population expansion and a very rapid expansion of the better educated. And the red and, and yellow uh, categories are sort of really phasing out over the long run. And by the middle of the century, this will be a very highly educated workforce. But again, as I said, formal education is only part of the story. You need many other dimensions of quality that uh, require consideration here. Well, just a couple of slides on fertility in Singapore because it's such a hot topic and everybody keeps asking about it. Here on the left, you have uh, the numbers as the UN gives it for all countries in the world since the middle of the century. This is the so-called total fertility rate, or TFR which is not really the mean number of children that are born over a life course of women. It's just a snapshot in, in one year that is indicative of the level that was above six up to 1960, incredibly high. Only in Africa today we have comparable high fertility rates. And then this rapid decline already by 75 
uh, it fell below the replacement level of two surviving children per woman. And, and then at the moment, it's somewhere around 1.2, 1.3. And you see these uh, uh, lines, uh, these uh, annual TFRs of the past decades, and people have recognized that these peaks are always in the dragon years. So we'll see what, uh, what happens in the future years. So there are some annual fluctuations here. Uh, the key question that, and is that this TFR is a distorted factor, and particularly in times when women postpone childbearing, when the mean age of childbearing increases, then the TFR is artificially depressed. It gives too low numbers in terms of the mean number of children per woman, and uh, so we can look at cohort fertility, uh, that's the fertility of women who've reached age 45, see how many children they had over their lifetime, and these blue dots show that cohort fertility uh, still is uh, in Singapore uh, higher than what the TFR indicates, and that the it's hard to estimate, given the data that is available, uh, some corrections. In other countries, we have done such corrections, like here for the Czech Republic. Uh, you see that the black line is the TFR, that after 1990 in these Eastern European countries really very rapidly declined. Um, but at the same time, the mean age of childbearing increased rapidly. So at this point, young women in the Czech Republic just postponed childbearing. And that's the reason why so few births were born and the TFR fell. If we adjust for this effect, you see the blue and the yellow line, two different ways of adjusting it, then the fertility was still much higher and didn't fall. And there's a huge gap of about 0.5 almost half a child between the TFR and what actually is what we call the quantum of fertility, the mean number of children. So what is the quantum of fertility currently in Singapore? Uh, we don't really know because we don't have the data, but I would estimate it would be somewhere around 1.5 uh, children per woman. So clearly higher than the registered 1.2 to 1.3. Another question, of course, is what is the optimal number of children. What should societies aim at as the best level, desirable level of fertility? And here, often uh, the uh, replacement level fertility, 2.1, is mentioned uncritically, but there's nothing magic about uh, 2.1. It really results from a very specific technical demographic model of stable population under no changes in mortality, no migration, and then it's the level uh, that would result in long-term population stability. Uh, well, um, another fact is that if we f show at the heterogeneity of the population, as I said before, uh, considering the fact that not member of society makes the same economic contribution, but stratified by level of education, then we modify what's usually called the dependency ratio, which is the children plus the retired on the side of the burden and the working age population on the side of the contribution. Uh, then we, we change it and we now have education-weighted dependency ratios or support ratios. Support ratios is simply the inverse when you put the working age population on top and divide it by the children and the retired. So we each uh, uh, we stratify the working age population is those with primary education, they get a weight one, and then the secondary education, they get a higher weight because they make more contribution, and the tertiary still make more contribution. And uh, for children, we also consider the cost of education that is higher for more educated, for tertiary education than it is for primary only. And also for the retired, uh, we figure in the, the pension costs and uh, different ages of retirement depending 
uh, on the level of education uh, given on empirical data. We don't really have the time now to go into this model, but what I wanted to show is uh, that, uh, and this, let's just look at the black curve, which is the long run sort of equilibrium state in this model. Uh, there is a, a peak in terms, the indicator is here the education weighted support ratio, so the higher you are, the better the welfare in society, and it is somewhat left to the 2.1. So if you have a highly educated population, like in Singapore, where it's very costly uh, to educate the young ones, but this will pay back through higher productivity at uh, working age then, the optimal fertility, the peak of this curve, really shifts somewhat uh, to the left, so the number turns out to be 1.75 in Singapore, clearly below the 2.1 that is most often mentioned. But you also see that if fertility falls much lower, let's see what I can use this pointer. If fertility, let's say, falls below one, then of course there's a massive and very rapid decline in, in welfare. So uh, that is, would indeed be tragic for societies if fertility would be that low. But as long as it stays somewhere uh, in the case of Singapore, uh, in the range, I would say 1.4 to 1.89. This is a relatively flat optimum here. Uh, then there isn't any panic about low fertility. Of course, there are some cities like Hong Kong has still lower fertility or um, Shanghai has uh, 0.8 only. Uh, then, of course, the, this is uh, critically low fertility. Okay, now let's uh, move on to the question that is sort of at the heart of this talk. Is population aging actually bad for productivity growth? And at my institute in Vienna, we do have a big group uh, under the leadership of Alexei Pliskovitz uh, who studies exactly these things. And we did a big European comparative study with more in-depth focus on Sweden and on Austria, collecting all the different levels and once we start to talk about uh, productivity at the national level, we first start thinking in terms of individuals. So we collected all the available information about how does individual level productivity uh, change with age. And there the evidence is actually rather depressing. So when it comes to your bodily strength, it's really <coughs> age 25 is the peak, and after that it goes down. And I mean, you know this from sports, if a football star reaches age 30, he has seen his best years already. It, it's really in the mid-20s that uh, our body is in, in best physical shape. What was even more depressing, and I didn't know before, that actually our speed of mental perception starts to decline after the age of 30. So we are not as quick in, in getting things. But the good news associated with this is also that experience increases with age, and that can happen up to very high ages. And through experience, we develop tricks, so to say, in our mind to overcome uh, the, the weaknesses that we uh, develop over age, like uh, not thinking as fast or forgetting things. And these, these tricks that we develop through experience often can compensate or overcompensate uh, the decline of our, of our mental uh, speed. So these are, are quite interesting things that have not yet, I mean, developmental psychology pays a lot of attention uh, to these things. And what this now means for economic productivity, it really depends on the kind of a job. If you have a job where experience and having also an overview of what's happening in other companies, what's happening in the world, uh, and you develop a sense of what is important and what is less important, these are very, very important skills that develop with age. And they, this increase with age 
can be more important uh, than the decline uh, in, in some of the mental capacities and the speed of perception uh, that happens with age. Of course, the, this decline is rather slow after the age of 30, and then after the age of 60 or 70, it accelerates, and, and then we see huge differentiations. And then again, education matters. The data show very clearly that more educated people have a, this a retarded, elated decline in their mental capacities than less educated people. Well, there is a huge body of literature on the individual level, and this is just a very superficial summary of what we could find. What about the firm level, or some people call it the meso level? Uh, what is it, the workforce of companies is younger versus older? Does this have an impact on the productivity of the company? Well, a first look seems to show yes. Because if uh, the whole ICT industry, they are clearly, in almost any country, the most productive, se productive sector of the economy, and they tend to have the youngest workforce. Uh, but, uh, of course, they have the youngest workforce because they have so recently developed. They're sort of mostly new recruitees, so we don't know whether the young workforce has anything to do with the reason for being so productive. So what we next do, we, we control for these sectors of industry, like look at the ICT uh, um, in difference from uh, other production, like the, the steel industry or the mining industry, agriculture, uh, sales, and so on. If you look at by industry sector, then the picture already gets much more complex. Then it's not true anymore that entirely young companies with lots of young uh, workers are the most productive. Quite the opposite, it turns out that those companies have a good age mix. They are the most productive. They have both young ones as well as more experienced older workers. Uh, so that is an interesting finding. It's very hard to do this analysis because typically companies um, don't give you the um, the age profiles of, of the employees. We got this through the social security scheme, but in the social security scheme, you don't have the productivity of the company, so we had to match this uh, with other tax records. And of course, there's a lot of sickness about how productive they are. So it's, it's a tricky business, but I think it's very important to do more research along these lines. And then the last level is sort of the macro level at the national level. And that was a real surprising finding that these very elaborate regressions show that typically countries do best where the cohort of men that are 50 to 60 year old are the strongest. So it really seems to be the, the productivity, the work of the 50 to 60 year olds that uh, drive national, or uh, let's say associated uh, with national level uh, GDP growth. And it's in a way not surprising because this is also the highest income group. So if it's purely sort of on a monetary basis, it's value added. These groups have the, the highest income, particularly the male uh, 50 to 60 year age groups. And uh, that is uh, the aggregate level associated uh, with uh, also the highest uh, productivity growth. So this clearly also requires uh, more work, but it really sheds serious doubts on this uh, very frequently made but rather superficial expectation that aging societies have economic problems as a consequence of population aging. And also, if I don't really see any evidence for this in any country. Quite the opposite. For instance, Germany. Germany is the oldest country in the world when it comes to the median age of the population. It's still somewhat higher than Japan. Yet Germany, in economic terms, is, is thriving at the moment doing better than most other European countries that are younger. Greece is younger. Spain is quite a bit younger than 
um, Germany. And actually, the, the newest uh, case of crisis, Cyprus, has a population that's about 10 years younger on average. The median is 10 years lower than Germany. So why doesn't the young, dynamic population of Cyrus overtake uh, Germany? Well, there may, are many, many other reasons, of course, that uh, influence economic growth. And evidently, the population age structure is only a minor reason. And it's not going in the frequently expected uh, direction. Again, uh, we have not yet seen countries uh, that uh, have experienced the kind of rapid acceleration of aging that we are expecting for the coming decades. So our historical experience is still limited. But at least up to this point, I have not seen any convincing evidence uh, that indeed uh, aging of the labor force in this case has negative consequences. OK, what are the policy parameters to increase national level productivity? And that's also this study. This is a very comprehensive European Union study. Shows that while the education age structure is of only secondary, of minor importance, very clearly two things stand out as factors that can be influenced by policies and that are very important for sort of population-based factors for enhancing uh, the economic productivity. The one, not surprisingly, is higher education levels. They are very important for maintaining economic growth in aging societies. And there one should also take account of the delay between the investments and education. So we, we make these investments when children are young and they are teens and early 20s. And then the benefits uh, really come when they are 50 to 60 or older. So it, it's many decades in between. So we have to uh, consider this uh, delay uh, when doing the modeling and also when thinking about policies. And another factor that has not uh, received enough uh, emphasis really is the high importance of labor force participation rate, particularly of women, uh, because in many countries the labor force participation rate of women is still lower than that of men. And uh, there's also been talking that possibly this could be combined with less hours of work per week, where of course Singapore stands out with a particularly high number of hours worked per week, and sort of stretching them over longer spans of your life. Not work like crazy until you retire then at age 60, and then work not at all, but rather more equally distributed over your life. That would be more appropriate to your health status, also to your family life. When we are young adults, we also uh, need more time with our families. So the conclusion of this major study is that the negative effects of aging have been exaggerated in the public discussion and they can be largely ameliorated by these two policies that I mentioned above, namely education and labor force participation. Let's look at the labor force data for Austria and also by level of education, because here again, not many people know that how important it is. So this is women in Austria uh, by, sorry, this is German labels, but red means uh, the lowest, that's just compulsory schooling. Uh, this means intermediate education, and this means university schooling. And here we have age. And we see uh, that uh, by the age of 25, 29, already in Austria, young women who are better educated have about 90% labor force participation. And uh, then uh, this in Austria, they have a rather low age of retirement still already in 50, 54, it starts declining. And by 60, almost all women are retired because the legal retirement age for women is 60, but the actual retirement age in Austria for women is only 57 years. But then look at the women with lower education. Well, they have this baby break that you see, used to see for all women in the past, but now it's only the less educated. And once you start a family and have children, you drop out of the labor force. Some of them come back to work 
when the children are grown up, but not all of them, so it's still only 70%, and then they also drop out of the labor force much earlier. And this picture is even for men. Of course, for men, you don't have this uh, baby drop out uh, for the less educated, but generally still the level of labor force participation for men is, is lower for the, those who have a lower level of education and those with intermediate or high education really almost have a 100%. But when it comes to retirement, we also see this interesting difference that indeed the, the highest educational groups work significantly longer uh, than the less educated groups. So here again, another factor where the interaction between education and labor force participation, and these are really the drivers of the economic dimensions of aging. In Europe, we have this broad spectrum. Austria is retiring quite early, as I showed. Italy and Greece and Spain are retiring even earlier than that. Uh, the Nordic countries uh, retire later. So we did some simulations. Let's say if Austrian men and women uh, would take on over time over the next 20 years the labor force participation that rates that we have, for instance, in Denmark today. There wouldn't be any aging problem at all. So this increase in the labor force, both of women and at higher ages, would more than outweigh the aging of the baby boom generation. So again, these are the really key uh, parameters. Finally, we've been working on uh, what we call redefining uh, the meaning of age and also the measurement old, old age dependency ratios. Let me say a few words. I mean, age typically is calculated as the time since birth. But as I said before, we have this tremendous increase in life expectancy as well as in health of the elderly. And I mentioned that 70 is the new 60 or 80 is the new 70. And there's good scientific basis for, for making this statement. But the one thing that we have not changed and adjusted to these new trends is our demographic measures. We still use the so-called old age dependency ratios, which has an enumerator, the number of people above the age of 65, and in the denominator, those 20 to 64. Actually, in the past, the UN used 60 and above, and to, uh, 15 to 60. Uh, so already moving it up to 65 uh, takes account of uh, some of the, the changes that happened in many countries. But then when we look over time, and most slides I've seen that show the increasing burden of dependency, they just keep this limit of 65 constant. Uh, and of course, in the future, these elderly people will be more able to work. So what we've developed is an alternative measure that we define age not as the time since birth, but we take the remaining life expectancy into account. So we consider somebody as old. If he, he is in an age, he or she is an age where the remaining life expectancy is 15 years or less. Of course, we could also choose 10 or 20 years, but. Uh, 15 years is a, a number that also matches some of the disability statistics that indeed the last 15 years of life uh, people are tend to start uh, this, this weakening um, physically and, and mentally. So we have now what we call the pro prospective old age dependency ratio. So we have the number of people that are older than uh, the, uh, on the burden side, older than whatever this age threshold is, the age at which you have less than uh, 15 years to live, divided by the number of people, 20, up to this age threshold. And this age threshold changes over time. And this has dramatic consequences on the picture of aging. Like here on our European demographic data sheets, we have maps of Europe. Here we have the conventional old age dependency ratio. 
Uh, and you see that the, the yellow and, and, and the light orange one area are the ones that have a particularly high burden as projected to 2030. Whereas the blue ones have a low old age dependency burden. And why is Eastern Europe doing better? Because, well, I showed up to 1990, they had higher fertility rates than the West. They had about around replacement fertility, and therefore the age structures are still younger than those in the West. So this is the, the usual pattern that we see, particularly Germany, Finland, and some of these other countries in Western Europe. They are really the heaviest burden on aging. Well, if we take now this prospective old age dependency, as I've just showed it to you, uh, then we have uh, the, the blue ones are the ones that have the lowest burden of dependency. And then all of a sudden, Western Europe has a low dependency burden as projected for 2030 because their elderly are in better shape. They have a longer expected life expectancy still. So once you factor this in into the age distribution, and now Eastern Europe really looks much worse because life expectancy and health of the elderly is so poor in Eastern Europe. This is just to illustrate that moving from one conventional indicator to another one that makes meaningful adjustments of our changing societies, the classification scheme changes completely. Okay, well, uh, time is running and I just wanted to highlight now a few global level consequences of human capital and education. Uh, Science Magazine has recently a review of uh, global population trends and, and we summarized uh, the uh, impact of education on population growth at the global level. And here we have four different scenarios that assume identical education-specific fertility trends, but just different education policies. So this is the most optimistic where we have the fast-track education expansion scenario. And you see here by 2050, the world population is only 8.8 .8 billion, whereas the most pessimistic one is the constant enrollment numbers. It means you stop building schools tomorrow while the population is still expanding. You are not keeping track with the population expanding. Well, that results in almost 10 billion people. So already by 2050, there's a difference in world population of 1 billion, simply uh, due to the fact uh, that uh, different uh, yeah, education uh, policies might be taken. And of course, that women with higher education have a lower birth rate and uneducated women have a higher birth rate. And this is the reason uh, for this big difference here. As I said, we had this new detailed uh, age-specific information which really can shed an entirely new light on the whole field, this huge field of economic growth analysis and macro growth regressions, uh, where the economists were always puzzled by the fact that on the individual level, it's quite clear, more education gives you higher income. So these so-called individual returns to education were beyond any doubt. But at the aggregate level, at the level of countries and time series of countries, it wasn't clear the data didn't show that indeed as countries were getting better educated on average, their economic growth was better. And the reason we can show here is that this is really due to the bad indicators they used. They used this over aggregate, like the mean years of schooling of all 25 years and above. That mixes, in the case of Singapore, as I've showed you, the uneducated elderly uh, with the much better educated young ones. And so this indicator has very little statistical signal, as we say, and therefore cannot explain economic growth. If we go by five-year age groups, 
or even broader 10-year or 15-year age groups, we can beautifully demonstrate that on average for the countries in the world, the education expansion was the most rapid during the years when the better educated cohorts came into the young adulthood, uh, the working age years. And in addition, we can show that it is really universal primary and secondary education that is the key, uh, rather than elitist education in a context where you forget large segments of the population. So, and that was the system in, in many historical populations that you had sort of a tiny educated elite, but the masses of unemployed illiterate farmers. And only when uh, through social changes as they happened here in Singapore or in Korea in the 1950s after the Japanese um, occupation, it really had broken up the feudal system there and all of a sudden the ideal of high education spread all over the population and that initiated the economic takeoff. And the same we've seen in China, then uh, this broad-based secondary education now is, as I view it and my colleagues here, and according to this new study, is the main driver of economic growth. And that is, of course, the main recipe for South Asia, uh, Western Asia, and in particular Sub-Saharan Africa, that there should be this major emphasis on universal uh, basic education uh, as a prerequisite for hopefully future development. Okay, uh, we mentioned uh, aging and health and uh, education, and here this is some Austrian data where you just very clearly show that at any given age, and again, these are these German labels for red being the lowest educational category and blue here uh, being the highest, that let's say women age 70, uh, if they are with the lowest education, only compulsory education, the probability of having serious uh, disabilities is twice as high as if the 70-year-old woman has, only, has a university education. So there is this massive and there's lots of evidence that is indeed a causal mechanism that more educated people not only have better access to healthcare, uh, this is quite egalitarian under the Austrian healthcare system, but they themselves have a different attitude. They look more after their health. They have more preventive medicine measures. They have a healthier lifestyle. Uh, they, they see more quickly the, the signals that there is a problem and you should go to the doctor. So this more forward-looking attitude that has been clearly associated with education is very important for health. And again, remember, this is 50 or more years after you received your education. So it is really a very, very long-term investment. Now, um, this is something you typically academic uh, crowds like to see, so I'll show it again. Uh, we have good sources of historical data for all the learned societies, the academies of sciences in many countries. And uh, so here uh, we look at a specific indicator that is the life expectancy at the age of 16, so the remaining life expectancy. We first show it for Austria for the total population uh, from the late 19th century up to uh, 1950, and we see there has been very little increase. So most of the increases in life expectancy in these early years of improvement were with child mortality. Child mortality declined quite a bit. But once you were at the age 60, your remaining life expectancy hardly changed. Minor increases here. And then we look at the academicians, the selected group of high intellectuals member to the, elected to the academy. Well, they weren't really doing much better. They're, it's um, slightly higher, but it was because they were equally affected by infectious diseases. Also, they had better access uh, to whoever were the best doctors of the time, 
it didn't help them much with respect to their remaining life expectancy. Now we go for the second half of the century. Now uh, the remaining life expectancy for the entire population really picks up and has tremendous increases. So that's where the action is now. It's the remaining life expectancy at age 60. That's where we see the major improvement because mortality at lower ages has already declined. Now here we see the population in Austria with tertiary education. They're doing clearly better. They have about two to three years more of life expectancy. But the lucky academicians, look at them. They've now gained even more. It's going much, much more rapid. And uh, this is not only for academy members, but I, I think we can extrapolate this to all uh, researchers who keep an active mind until high age. And this is really the, the causal interpretation. It's not uh, an advantage uh, that they have in medical treatment. It is very unlikely to be selection that they somehow are tougher guys to start with, and therefore they make it into the academy and they have better health and live longer. But it's likely to be the consequence of continued mental activities at high age. I mean, it's amazing when I go to this meeting how many 90-year-old men there are sitting who are still reading and talking about and having ideas and just keeping your mind going also keeps you alive. Okay, education does many other good things, and here is uh, the, we did another study with this new data on the quality of governance, and uh, there's sort of overwhelming evidence that at a very broad level, this is really sort of 30-year averages uh, that we've plot here, 1970 uh, to 2000, uh, that uh, countries that have a better educated population are more in the position to exert the checks and balances that are needed for a functioning democracy. So this indicator here is the Freedom House indicator of democratic rights. It's not uncontroversial, you may like or not like it, uh, but at least it, it's one quantitative indicator that we have how democratic societies are, and you see on average, there's quite some dispersion, but the overall relationship is very strong, and we then did multivariate analysis where we controlled for income, which actually is much less, much weaker correlated uh, to uh, the, the political rights than education. And it makes sense, you need an empowered demos, as we say, demos is the word, it's the population in Greek, that really is the common root of democracy, is the, the rule of the people and demography, which is the study, the analysis of the demos. Another big, big question is the future threats to global warming and, and climate change and all the associated disasters. Well, you can't study the climate change threat because it's just starting to be felt, but we can study the vulnerability and the adaptive capacity to natural disasters. And we just had another major study that clearly demonstrates this very strong relationship that even after controlling for economic standing, the thing that economists usually think matters, the, the income, once we control for them, income is less important than the average education of the population, which results in a better prevention, in better organization, better preparedness, but also better ability to recover from shocks, both at the individual level, this uh, traumatic stress syndrome, more educated people can overcome better, as well as the societal level. Well, this all concludes and uh, leads us to, to look uh, at human capital in a broader sense. Not Economists often, when they talk about human capital, it's specific skills that are needed for specific industries with the exclusive goal to increase income or increase GDP growth. That's not the way I see human capital. It's a much broader uh, way of a focus on the 
is a start already. It's us, the people, who produce all the well-being of societies. So we need to have a focus on the human resource base for sustainable development. And how you define human resources, well, I'd like to define it after quite some thinking back and forth, as the ability of people to, first of all, help themselves, improve their life, the life of their families, but also the capacity to help others. That's the, the social capital, that's the network, that's also working together in, in firms to their uh, common benefit. And these, as we showed, crucially depend on age, on the health status, on the education, but then also beyond formal education, it is really the, the motivation. People need to want to do this. It's also their imagination and innovativeness. It's the social networks they embedded. These are all very relevant factors for economic well-being as well as general social well-being. But again, the, the formal education does play a central role and complemented by a more broader learning from the first day of your life until very old age, as we've shown with these aging academicians. So again, formal education is only one aspect, but in policy terms, and particularly in the developing countries, I think the main priority is a universal basic education, acquiring literacy as a prerequisite for many of the other good things. In mature societies like Singapore or Europe, where we already have very high levels of education, here the emphasis needs to be more on the quality and on the content of education, on developing critical thinking, uh, imagination, innovativeness. Uh, this cannot simply be uh, added by adding more pressure to schools. This requires uh, different types of environment for learning, and that's what our attention needs to be given to. Well, the, the final point uh, is, uh, well, just a question here. Can we, uh, is population size, is the size of a market very important, uh, or is it the per capita income that matters? So um, in the, uh, well, let's just go back to this. Um, which region or which entity grew more rapidly, the US or Europe, the European Union? Well, in 1954, the population of the US and of the then European Union was exactly the same at 163 million. And then the US grew more rapidly demographically. They now have uh, 300 million people, whereas these initial uh, countries that formed the EU uh, grew much more uh, slowly because less immigration and lower fertility. But the European Union as such expanded and now have reached uh, 500 million. So the market has become much bigger. So what economists see sort of the, the critical market size, the economies of scale as they matter for economic standing, actually need not only be achieved by expanding the population base that is described in the Singapore White Paper, but it can also be achieved by opening up the borders uh, to your neighbors and just creating the market, a bigger market, without having to increase your own population. And uh, in the European Union, this is relatively far advanced. Uh, free movement, but in the ASEAN context, you're also engaging in a very interesting experiment or development following the European example, slowly opening up the borders. And therefore, I want to show in conclusion some of these education pyramids for some of your partners here. Look at Thailand today, amazingly well-educated already. Look at the young courts, not as well-educated as in uh, Singapore. But again, also fertility rates have declined, not as much as in Singapore, but you also have high proportions, almost universal primary and 
more than half of the young women have received secondary education and increasing proportions have received tertiary education. And Thailand has come a long way because in 1970, it really was a developing country in many respects. And this is Thailand in 2030, when likely the, the ASEAN market may be opened up more than it is today. Look, that doesn't look too different from an industrialized, developed country age structure. The interesting feature is in Thailand, women really tend to be better educated than men. This is in some countries, and Thailand is one of these. Vietnam, a country that has more recently started to develop, you see this massive fertility decline that has recently happened in, in Vietnam, but also the younger cohorts started to get much better educated, despite of their much bigger size. Indonesia, your big neighbor with uh, 240 million, you see there also they have had some fertility decline, so it's around the placement level, so it's not shrinking at the bottom that much, and uh, also significant advances in education among the younger population. And uh, Myanmar, the country that is just now opening up and is possibly also a future market, well, actually, it was to me, surprisingly high levels of education, even in terms of tertiary education. So at the end, I just wanted to direct the focus uh, to the, the ASEAN region going uh, beyond Singapore. And let me just put up a few questions now for discussions. Uh, because we were fortunate to have here in the audience also some people who were in one way or the other related uh, to this white paper. And uh, we really have to think critically about uh, a few distinctions. So what should be the goal of population policies? Is it primarily increasing aggregate level GDP? So the GDP growth, that's what most business people look at. Uh, so what's the growth rate from one year to the next? And this also seems to inspire quite strongly the, the, the white paper. On the other hand, most macroeconomists think that the, the real criterion is the GDP per capita. So you, it's, it's not so important what is the total size of the GDP, but per person. And they are sort of adding less skilled uh, people uh, that uh, make a smaller contribution on average uh, to society actually doesn't help much with increasing the GDP per capita. It also doesn't help much with increasing productivity uh, per worker. And uh, so a per capita perspective, even limiting to the narrow GDP, already gives you a different perspective. And then it's the question, are we looking here at national strengths vis-a-vis uh, -vis our neighbors? Uh, that is, of course, a, a political goal. Let's say if uh, uh, President Putin of Russia has a very, very, very preoccupied by demographic trends because uh, he wants to have more people in Siberia. He's afraid that Russia will lose its strength. And also historically, the, the French, uh, the, who have for a century now very strong pro-natalist policies, were essentially motivated by the idea of national strength, in that case, vis-a-vis -vis Germany. But there are other criteria. I mean, we, we want to optimize possibly the happiness of the population and our subjective well-being. You may have heard of Bhutan is actually having this uh, gross national happiness indicators. And in the United Nations development system, more and more countries think that these sort of indicators should be added to the traditional GDP. And as you know, of course, the uh, UNDP Human Development Index also added education and life expectancy in addition to GDP as the main ingredients of this development indicator. But you may also focus on increasing cultural and national identity, which is again a different thing from national strengths vis-a-vis -vis the outside world. And uh, that is something that I sensed when, when attending this rally on, on the white paper last uh, 
Saturday and talking to some people, that's what they really seem to be most preoccupied with, is sort of the identity of, of Singaporeans. And then there's the concern, a very legitimate concern, about strengthening the social cohesion uh, that has to do with the uh, degree of how many new migrants are there, how different are the migrants from the native population, what is the absorptive capacity of societies. And last but not least, there's the issue of global environmental sustainability. So when the uh, white paper uses the word of a sustainable population, of course, I first think, well, do they want to factor in environment? But of course, here it does not, uh, it's not meant in the environmental dimension. From a global environmental perspective, there's little doubt uh, that a smaller population has a lower, ecolo a weaker ecological footprint uh, on the planet and also will be more likely to cope with the uh, big challenges that we are facing in terms of climate change. Well, I've talked my time. Thank you very much for your attention.